Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the Global Church. I'm Debbie Thomas. This week, Dan offers his annual 10 Best Biographies 2019 for the December 29, 2019 RCL. It's that time of year for the most subjective of exercises, choosing my favorite books of 2019. Truly, there is no accounting for personal taste. This year, I'm doing something a little different. I'm reaching all the way back to when we launched JWJ in 2004 and selecting my all-time 10 best biographies. Please note that you can search JWJ's comprehensive index of over 800 book reviews alphabetically by author or by 15 different subject categories like history, art, economics, etc. And if you ever get stuck, just use the search button in the top right corner of every JWJ page. The hot-linked titles will take you to my full book reviews. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and Happy Reading. Johnny Cash By Robert Hilburn, Johnny Cash, The Life Almost everyone who was close to Johnny Cash wrote their memoir. His two wives, his son John, his daughter Roseanne, and the bass player of 25 years, Marshall Grant, who once wondered aloud how someone could be so talented, so inspirational, and so screwed up. Cash himself wrote two autobiographies in 1975 and 1997. There's a mountain of secondary sources. Is there any need for another book about Cash? Robert Hilburn, the music editor of the LA Times for 35 years, put this question to Lou Robbins, who managed Cash for 25 years. When asked how much of the Johnny Cash story had been told, Robbins replied, only about 20%. Dorothy Day by Kate Hennessy, Dorothy Day, The World Will Be Saved by Beauty, An Intimate Portrait of My Grandmother. In the acknowledgments at the end of this book, Kate Hennessy says that it took her five years to write this family memoir about her paradoxical grandmother, Dorothy Day, her many complexities and contradictions, and in particular the deeply complicated mother-daughter relationship between Day and her only child, Tamar. Well, it was worth the wait. Paul Farmer Tracy Kidder, Mountains Beyond Mountains, The Quest of Dr. Paul Farmer, A Man Who Would Change the World. Paul Farmer was born in 1959, the second of six children. He grew up in Alabama and then Florida, where his mother clerked at the Winn-Dixie grocery store, and his colorful but strict father, nicknamed the Warden by his daughters, bought an old bus at a public auction that he planted at a trailer park near a campground. Throwing a cement block in front of the bus doors for steps, the warden declared the bluebird in-house and home for the next five years. He then moved everyone to a dilapidated 50s boat with a leaky roof, also bought at a public auction, which he moored in an uninhabited bayou on Florida's Gulf Coast. They had no running water and washed their clothes at a laundry in town. Farmer would later enjoy identifying himself as poor white trash. Alexander Hamilton by Ron Chernow Alexander Hamilton Ron Chernow's magisterial biography commemorates the 200th anniversary of the death of Alexander Hamilton, who was killed in a duel by then-Vice President Aaron Burr. Because of the savage politics and pathological enmity between Hamilton and his detractors, Jefferson, Madison, Adams, and Monroe, his reputation has suffered neglect, when in fact he might have been the most important architect of our post-revolutionary American experiment. Hamilton's was, quote, the most dramatic and improbable life of any of the founding fathers, a life so tumultuous that only an audacious novelist could have dreamed it up. Julian of Norwich by Amy Frycombe, 
Julian of Norwich, A Contemplative Biography. Her mother said that she asked too many questions. As a girl, she had an insatiable desire to experience the love of God beyond the rituals of the church. She survived the plagues of 1349 and 1362, which decimated three-quarters of the population of Norwich on England's east coast. Then came the visions, showings, or what she called the ravings, during a period of sickness when she almost died. Martin Niemöller, by Matthew D. Hockenos, Then They Came for Me, Martin Niemöller, the pastor who defied the Nazis. It's been said that we want our heroes without blemishes and our villains without redemption. Matthew Hockenos calls his biography of the German Lutheran pastor Martin Niemöller revisionist, precisely in order to repudiate this dangerous temptation. The title of his book comes from Niemöller's famous poetic confession, the exact origins of which remain a mystery. First they came for the communists, and I did not speak out, because I was not a communist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out, because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out, because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. As Hakuno shows by his own admission, and for a long time, resistance is exactly what Niemöller did not do. Flannery O'Connor by Brad Gooch, Flannery, A Life of Flannery O'Connor. Mary Flannery O'Connor published only two novels, Wise Blood in 1952 and The Violent Bared Away in 1960, and two collections of short stories, A Good Man is Hard to Find and Other Stories in 1955, and the posthumous Everything that Rises Must Converge in 1965. That output was more than enough for her short life to cast a long shadow across the literary landscape evidenced by the 195 doctoral dissertations and 70 book-length studies of her work. Rosa Parks by Jean Theoharis, The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. This new biography of Rosa Parks coincides with the 100th anniversary of her birth on February 4, 1913. Remarkably, it's the first comprehensive and critical biography of one of the most important women in American history. Parks's many awards included a Presidential Medal of Freedom, the highest award given by the executive branch of government, and the Congressional Gold Medal, the highest honor bestowed by the legislative branch. When she died in 2005 at the age of 92, Parks became the first woman, the second black person, and only the third private citizen to lie in honor in the Capitol Rotunda. Mother Teresa, Brian Kolodichuk, editor, Mother Teresa, Come Be My Light, The Private Writings of the Saint of Calcutta. When the desert monastics of 4th century Egypt fled the bustle and business of the cities to survey the geography of the human heart, they discovered that the outward journey in the noisy world was a lot easier than the interior journey of the soul in the desert solitude. Without exception, they recommended the sage advice of St. Anthony the Great, expect trials until your last breath. To the shock and dismay of many admirers and the criticisms of some detractors, this volume of Mother Teresa's private correspondence shows that she was no exception to this monastic rule. Published to coincide with the 10th anniversary of her death in 1997, letter after letter documents the deep darkness that plagued her for 50 years. David Foster Wallace by D.T. Max, Every Love Story is a Ghost Story, A Life of David Foster Wallace. By the time David Foster Wallace graduated from Amherst College in 1985, he had won 10 academic awards and written two senior theses. One was for the philosophy department on modal logic, 
the other a 500-page monster for the English department, which was published as his first novel when he was 23, The Broom of the System. He had also developed a heavy drug habit, battled severe clinical depression, attempted suicide, and submitted himself to psychiatric hospitalization. In this first full-length biography of Wallace, these two themes crisscrossed like a double helix, a brilliant polymath who for many readers altered the form and function of writing fiction, and a tragic life that ended in suicide at the age of 46, after struggling for 30 years with what he called the bad thing. For books this week, Dan reviews Then They Came For Me, Martin Niemöller, The Pastor Who Defied the Nazis, by Matthew D. Hokanos. It's been said that we want our heroes without blemishes and our villains without redemption. Matthew Hokanos calls his biography of the German Lutheran pastor Martin Niemöller revisionist, precisely in order to repudiate this dangerous temptation. The title of his book comes from Niemöller's famous poetic confession, the exact origins of which remain a mystery. First they came for the communists, and I did not speak out because I was not a communist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. As Hakuno shows by his own admission and for a long time, resistance is exactly what Niemöller did not do. Martin Niemöller was both deeply Christian and fervently nationalist. For him, there was a connection between throne and altar, patriotism and spirituality. Serving in the Navy for nearly 10 years as a submarine commander in World War I fulfilled a childhood dream. After Germany's humiliating defeat, he detested the liberal democratic Weimar Republic. He voted for Hitler and the Nazi party twice. He longed for the good old days of the traditional monarchy. Even when he was imprisoned, he volunteered to rejoin the German military in World War II. And while he eventually did spend eight years in prison as Hitler's personal prisoner, that was only because he objected to Hitler's interference in the Lutheran Church. He had little to say about his treatment of Jews or his economic, domestic, or foreign policies. Only around 1933 to 1934 did Niemöller begin to repudiate his ultranationalist and anti-Semitic views and articulate his personal responsibility for not resisting more, along with the collective guilt of the entire nation for the Holocaust. And so two times in his biography, Hakunos tells the story of how in 1945 Niemöller took his beloved wife Elsa back to Dachau to show her the cell where he had been imprisoned. There they saw a simple plaque that read, here in the years 1933 to 1945, 238,756 people were cremated. Niemöller later recalled that when he read the plaque, a cold shudder ran down my spine. It wasn't just the number of people murdered that haunted him, he said. It was the dates. Dachau opened in 1933. At that time, Niemöller was a free man and a prominent pastor. Quote, my alibi accounted for the years 1937 to 1945, he said. But God was not asking me where I had been from 1937 to 1945, but from 1933 to 1945, and for those earlier years, I did not have an answer. And yet Niemöller did change, even radically so, compared to his earlier self. In his later years, he became an ardent pacifist and a world traveler as an ecumenical ambassador. His message by that time was threefold. The futility of war, the importance of church engagement in public affairs, and the need to build a worldwide Christian brotherhood. For films this week, Dan reviews Pavarotti. 
director Ron Howard's documentary film about the world's most famous tenor doesn't quite qualify as hagiography, but it comes close. For example, there's no mention of his tax evasion case, his philandering, or that he had an infuriating reputation as the king of cancellations. So there's a lost opportunity here for a more subtle and complex film. Nonetheless, it's very easy to enjoy learning about the life of the legendary Luciano Pavarotti. There's Pavarotti's childlike love of life, gregarious nature, extensive humanitarian work, and larger-than-life personality. And then, whatever the criticisms about his later popularizations with pop music, there's the voice and the music. Howard gathered over 50 interviews for the film, including Pavarotti's two wives, his personal assistant and lover, Madeleine Renee, his three estranged daughters, colleagues like Placido Domingo, his managers, music critics, collaborators like Bono of YouTube, etc. As you would expect, he also makes extensive use of archival footage of operas and concerts, along with still photography. And as Pavarotti spoke perfect English, he gets to tell his own story in much of the film. It's worth noting that the film was made with the cooperation of the Pavarotti estate. By the time he died from pancreatic cancer, Pavarotti had sold over 100 million records and left an estate of $474 million. Lastly, for poetry during this week of Christmas, Born to Give a Second Birth by Jack Brown. In our poverty of spirit, Christ arrived as God's good word. Grant us, God, good grace to hear it. Christ was born to be our Lord. In the gloom of deep, dull darkness, in the shade of endless night, Jesus came, a child, a baby, born to give us hope and light. In the gloom of deep, dull darkness, in the shade of endless night, Jesus came, a child, a baby, born to give us hope and light. When we felt our hearts were broken, Jesus met us face to face, loving us in word and token, born to give us peace and grace. Wisest one of all the ages, Christ came here, a babe so small, early blessed by wise and sages, born to lead and bless us all. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for December 29th, 2019. We wish our JWJ readers around the world a Merry Christmas. This is Debbie Thomas.